Well, we have been in this series called, Did God Really Say That? And we're looking at things that often we think are in the Bible or come from the Bible, but they aren't actually in the Bible. Now, the origin of this actually takes us back to the first book in the Bible and the very first pages of the book of Genesis. And you may be somewhat familiar with the creation story. God creates uh, the, the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and then he creates mankind in his image, and he blesses mankind. And he says, all of this is yours. Then in Genesis 2, we're told, and the Lord God <clears throat> commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree in the garden. You're underline that if you've got your Bible, any tree except for one. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God says, every tree is yours, all the fruit, except for this one. Well, then in the very next chapter, the serpent, the evil one, comes to the woman, and I want you to see this. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which Andrew actually pointed out earlier this week that we owe credit to Satan for the title of this sermon series. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? And just to be clear, is that what God really said? No. He said, you are free to eat from any tree, all these trees, except for one. But you see how the enemy, the evil one, takes what God had said and begins to bend it. From the very beginning, the strategy of our enemy, the devil, is not just to throw out some bold-faced lie coming out of nowhere. Satan's strategy is to take what is true and to begin bending it ever so slightly, to say something that resembles truth and to twist it into something that leads us to question the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. And so we've looked in recent weeks at sayings like, God never gives you more than you can handle, or the safest place is at the center of God's will, or God helps those who help themselves. And for every one of these sayings, it's like there's an element of truth, right? There's something there, but we can end up taking those sayings, and if we go all the way, it can actually begin to lead us to question the trustworthiness of God, to begin to doubt God's character and that He is for us. Now, what we're looking at today as we finish this series uh, are some of the things that we sometimes say when people around us suffer. Sometimes we end up saying things that we think are maybe biblical and we assume are going to offer comfort, but they can actually do far more damage to someone who is already in great pain. I mentioned earlier this week in an email I sent out to the church that I recently had coffee with a friend whose 17-year-old daughter was shot and killed earlier this year. And as he shared coffee with me and just reflected on what it's been like to walk through this valley of the shadow of death, he shared with me some of the not-so-helpful things that people said to him and to his family trying to provide comfort, mostly Christians who just filled the space and said things that they thought were going to give comfort, but they actually can end up making it way worse. And so to do this, we're going to look at a book in the Old Testament, a well-known character that a lot of us have grown up associating with the whole notion of suffering. It's a guy named Job. And the question that Job forces us to ask is why? Why do we have to suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Where is God in tragedies that we do not have words to describe? When a 17-year-old girl is killed, when innocent children are gunned down in their classroom, when a senseless war continues without any end in sight, 100 days in, 
Why does an all-powerful God allow that to happen? Well, here's where the story of Job begins. Job 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. So the story begins in the land of Uz, and no, that's not a typo. It's not supposed to be the land of Oz. It's not a fairy tale land. There's no Oompa Loompas in Uz. Verse 1, we're told this man was blameless and upright. Job feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. That's a pretty good title, don't you think? Greatest man of all the people of the East. Down to verse 5. Early every morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. In other words, Job was a godly man. Every day he offered sacrifices on behalf of his kids, just in case they needed them because they had sinned. And some of you are thinking, there's not enough animals in the world, the planet, to cover the just-in-case sins that my kids are going to commit today. Job was concerned about his family's spiritual vitality. He was all over VBS. He didn't just drop his kids off. He was volunteering. He was doing the, the, the songs with the motions, hand motions on the stage. Job was all in on helping pass on the faith to his family. And so it would make sense that in his obedience, Job was greatly blessed. Ten children, thousands of livestock, land to feed them all. His blessing was consistent with his obedience. And we like it when that happens, don't we? See, it's never a problem when good people are blessed. That makes sense to us. But what happens next is what happens to everybody at some point who lives in the land of us. The land of us, it turns out, is a place where bad things happen to good people. It's a place of meaningless suffering. In the very next scene, there's a conversation between God and Satan, and God has asked this question. Does Job fear God for nothing? What follows is a kind of cosmic wager of sorts between Satan and God. Satan's out to prove that, that Job is only loyal to God because God keeps heaping on blessings in Job's life. It's a twisted scene. It almost reminds me of that old school movie from the 80s called Trading Places. Remember this? Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, who's basically just a pawn in their wager. But here's the question on which everything in this story hinges. It's the question that Satan asks. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job trust in God simply out of self-interest? Scratch my back, God, and I'll scratch yours. Is faith really just a bargain for a better life? John Orberg writes about this in his book, God is Closer Than You Think. He says the question is whether the core of this universe is really just a biological, evolutionary, dog-eat-dog -dog world driven by selfish forces and what's in it for me. Is sacrificial, self-giving, selfless love just a ruse, a figment of our imaginations? As the story unfolds, Job loses everything, his livestock, his business, his wealth, we're told a tornado comes through and destroys his house, and there in the wreckage, they find that all of their children have died, every one of them. The suffering doesn't end there. We're told that Job is afflicted with this painful disease and painful sores from head to toe on his body. The only relief that he could find from the pain was to scrape away the sores with this piece of broken pottery. And then we're given this little detail. We're told that Job sat among the ashes. 
we find him sitting and grieving on an ash heap. It's basically a picture of the village dump. It's the place where you would take your trash outside the village and burn it. Maybe he's been shunned. Maybe they're treating him like a leper. Maybe the shame is just so great and Job can no longer show his face among his people. He who was once considered the greatest man of the East and now he's sitting on a trash heap. It's funny how suffering has a way of isolating, isolating us from community. It's often our instinctive reaction to pain to withdraw from people, ironically, in that moment when we need them most. Well, fortunately for Job, he's got one thing going for him. He's still married. And he is married to a woman with the gift of spiritual, the spiritual gift of encouragement. (laughs) And so at least he's got that going for him. And so we're told in Job chapter 2 that she said very kindly to him, curse God and die. How about that for encouragement? Savage. Now, to be fair, a lot of people slam Mrs. Job at this point in the story for her lack of empathy. But think about what she's been through. She's lost everything too. Now she's married to a leper. If you've ever been close to someone in pain, sometimes it's almost harder to understand suffering when it strikes the one you love than when it happens to you. Well, then Job's friends get word of what has happened, and they show up, and it's one of the most redemptive moments in the story. For seven days, they sit with him in silence. Don't say a word. They show up, and they just sit with their friend, and they join him in his anguish for seven days and seven nights. It was such a sacred act that it's become a part of Jewish custom, and to this day, there's a practice called sitting Shiva, sitting sevens where friends will come and they will just join you in silence in the grieving. And if you've ever had a friend who's done that for you, not tried to fix you or resolve it or steer your faith away from doubt in those moments, trying to explain your suffering, there is something about a friend who is willing to enter into the pit and the cave and the despair that you're going through with you. Later on in the New Testament, Paul would say it this way to the church in Rome. He just said, mourn with those who mourn. He didn't say fix those who mourn or give good advice to those who mourn. Be with them. Sit with them. Open your heart to feel what they are feeling. Like in such a way that their mourning can almost become your own. For seven days they sit in silence and then we're told after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth and for 28 chapters, Job unleashes all the anger and hurt and bitterness and hostility he feels toward God. Well, Job's friends who faithfully sat with him for seven days, they don't really know what to do with this. So then they open their mouths And they start giving Job all the advice they could come up with in the situation. Job, maybe you've been sinning a lot. Maybe God is mad at you. Maybe if you just had enough faith, then God would heal you. I know a woman in the church that I used to be a part of, and her daughter was dying of cancer. The whole church was praying. Well, one day someone came to the mother and said, you know, God promises to heal. And the only thing that is keeping God from doing that for your daughter is that you have to have enough faith. And if you'll just pray with enough boldness and enough confidence and get rid of any doubt in your heart, well, then your daughter might get healed. Can you imagine what it's like to hear that? So let's talk practically for a moment about this. How do we respond to people when they suffer? I have a good friend named Vicki who is an amazing pastor. And over the years of her ministry, 
She has collected a list of dumb things not to say when caring for someone who's hurting. This is actually from years of experience with people who just say the wrong things trying to be helpful. In fact, she started collecting this after uh, someone in church one day came up to her and said, Vicki, isn't this the anniversary of your father's death? I never really liked him anyways. And she was like, really? That's going first in the list. I'm going to keep that one. So here are just a few examples, things not to say to someone who's suffering. First one, what did you do to bring this on? All right, not good redemptive theology right there. Or someone says to a grieving family, people around you will be watching you, so don't look too sad. Show them how strong your faith is. Be a good witness. No, no. Or God forbid something like this, which I've heard before, God must love you so much to give you a child with special needs. And then there's this one that is kind of the inspiration for our title today. If, if someone loses, ever loses a child, God forbid, please do not ever say, heaven gained another angel. And I know there's books out there and country western songs out there with that title, but can we just agree to let that one go? And I don't say this to make anyone feel bad about what you've said in the past. There are some cringeworthy moments from early on in my ministry that I deeply regret. But I do think it needs to be said, sometimes Christians add to the hurt when we open our mouths and try to make sense of someone's suffering. Job's friends try to explain why he's lost everything. Maybe it was this, maybe it was this. Have you thought about this in your past, Job? And this goes on for a number of chapters. Job just can't handle it. He's lashing out at God when his friends, sadly, cannot understand that sometimes in the midst of pain, a person needs to know that they can take whatever it is that they are feeling and thinking in that moment and they can lay it unfiltered before God. The writers of the Psalms understood this. He welcomes our lament, our hurt, our anger, the kind of honesty that almost scares us, but God can handle it. He can handle that kind of lament. So Job lashes out at God, and near the end of the book, he finally gets his response. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And I love that picture, out of the storm. God speaks to us in the storms. So for 28 chapters, Job put God on the witness stand, grilled him in court. Why did you do this to me, God? And now God returns the favor. Here's what God says. Prepare to defend yourself. I will question you, and you shall answer me. But it's so curious how God responds. The one question he never gets around to answering is the one question Job wanted answered. Why? Why did you let this happen to me? We're never given an answer to that question. And if that irks you and frustrates you, then you are not alone. And that's the tension we live in. It's the mystery of faith. Instead of answering this question, what God does again is he asks Job a bunch of questions that he can't possibly answer. And this is great. I'm going to give you a few examples here. He says to Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Okay, these are rhetorical questions. God is not looking for a re response like, no, I do not know when the mountain goats give birth, God. And this goes on and on, and it almost gets humorous. God starts to describe the most random creatures on the planet. He says, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and the feathers of the stork. Now, there's a reason ostriches and 
storks don't show up as on, you know, NFL helmets or as the mascots for Major League Baseball teams, right? A Highland Park fighting storks, it just, it's not impressive. And then cheerleaders would have to rhyme it with other words that sound like stork and it just wouldn't work. God says, look at the behemoth, what strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. God goes on to talk about the Leviathan, most likely referring to an ancient crocodile. Back then, they hated crocodiles. They were afraid of crocodiles. They didn't eat them like some people do today. I mean, where is God going with this? At first glance, it's almost like God is mocking Job, showing him up, reducing him to size. But what if, what if God's questions are actually revealing something to Job about the nature of who God is? A God who delights in the most silly, useless, even dangerous creatures. God delights in funny-looking ostriches and hippos with bulging muscles and inedible crocodiles, animals with no apparent usefulness. The writer Annie Dillard points this out, says God creates, God cares for, gives to, and delights in animals that that don't appear to be good for anything. God takes pleasure in the most random, unstrategic, insignificant things. Why? Because, to quote Dillard, God loves pizzazz. It's this generous, extravagant, almost wasteful display of God's love. He delights in the most random creatures in all creation. You see, Job never gets an answer to the why of suffering, but what he does find is something far better. He finds that God is there in the midst of it all. And that God's love for what he has made and his love for us has nothing to do with strategy or usefulness or selfish gain. He loves simply because he chooses to. What Job discovers is that we are loved not because we're valuable. We're valuable simply because we're loved. And that promise doesn't end. That story doesn't end with Job. Because it turns out Jesus, just like Job, knows all about suffering When he came to this earth, he suffered on our behalf. He was beaten, tortured. His body was unjustly pierced. His skin was torn. And then like Job, Jesus suffered on an ash heap called Calvary. Never do we see the greatness of God more clearly than we do on the cross so that we can say with Karl Barth that God would rather be the suffering God of a suffering people than the blessed God of an unblessed people. And that is good news for those who suffer. He is the God of the ash heap. He's the God of us. Well, how does the story end? What happens to Job? We're told that God eventually redeems Job from his suffering. He and Mrs. Job end up having more children. Then at the very end of the book, we're told that Job names his daughters, which we're not told, by the way, anything about his sons, which would have been the normal thing in that culture. It was all about the sons, not here. And that day, names were deeply symbolic. They held meaning. So his first daughter, Job, gives the name Jemima, which means dove, a beautiful bird. The second daughter he names Keziah, which refers to cinnamon, a a valuable, fragrant spice in that day. Ever been to an airport and you're walking through the terminal and you get that sweet aroma of the cinnamon buns? And you're at DFW Airport and you know it's like three quarters of a mile down the way at gate like 47, but you know that Cinnabon is coming. Job names his second daughter Cinnabone. (laughs) The third daughter he names Karen Hapuk. 
It's a beautiful name. It meant eyeshadow. Named his daughter after a kind of makeup. Isn't that great? This is my daughter, L'Oreal. <laughs> One last thing we're told about Job's life. Not only does he give him a name, but he gives his daughters an inheritance. Why? Why are we given all these details? Again, in that culture, in that depraved culture, daughters were never given an inheritance. The family wealth would always go through the sons because sons were strategic. Sons took care of their parents when they got older. They took care of the family business. They carried on the estate. Daughters, however, would go on to care for their husband's families. It made no sense for Job to give the family money away to his daughters. There's no strategic gain in that. It would be like putting your retirement into somebody else's 401k. What's going on here? Think about this. Now, it is Job who takes delight in the least strategic creatures. It is Job who is extravagantly generous, just prodigal with his riches, self-giving with his love, because Job has learned something about the heart of his God. And so this morning, if you're in the land of us, if you're on that ash heap right now, don't give up. Don't give in. Hold on. Hang on because your life matters to God. You are not strategic. No, you are his beloved, his child. And as we come to this table, remember that your suffering is never in vain. God will redeem it. One day, God will redeem it all. And until that day, God says to you and he says to me, I am big enough to handle your pain. I am big enough to absorb your hurts. Would you bring them to me? Because I'm the God of the ash heap. I'm the God of the cross. You join me in prayer. Father, would you reveal to us the truth of saying those words ever more clearly, even now, as we come to this table to break this bread and receive this cup. In Jesus' name, amen.